Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute and part of the Christians for Liberty Network. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and I have a recurring guest back with us. His name is Max Borders, and he is the executive director of Social Evolution, a nonprofit startup dedicated to liberating people and solving social problems through innovation. He's the author of After Collapse, The Social Singularity, The Decentralist, and now a new book, Underthrow, How Jefferson's Dangerous Idea Will Spark a New Revolution. Max, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's really great to have you back on. I always enjoy these conversations. We have a lot to talk about anytime we get together, whether it's hanging out or whether it's behind microphones over the internet. So I'm sure we'll have a good conversation today. Tell us a little bit about your new book. You're bringing in one of the founding fathers. So it's already in the subtitle, as people already know. But tell us a little bit what you're up to with this book. Yeah, that's a great opening question. What am I up to? I mean, look, I felt like with this one, I'm in a longstanding Jefferson fan, but a lot of I guess you could call the brand juju of my books has been a little bit futurist, a little bit forward looking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I still want to maintain that brand, even with evoking Jefferson as a character, I guess you could say in this. But I'm a Jefferson super fan. Sure. Yeah, I know he had slaves and all that stuff. And look, he's a human being and he had failings, but the ideas he held and the aspirations he fought for are worth fighting for today. In fact, I think we in great measure have backslid and I'm sure many of your listeners will agree. Yeah. But the idea behind Jefferson for me is like, he was cottoning on to so many of these radical ideas in the 1700s. And if you're already cottoning on to these kind of radical ways of thinking about things, and by that, I just mean very progressive in the Whiggish sense right? Referring to the old Whigs, W-H-I-G, that progress is about human social development through time. We're overcoming the age of monarchy. We're at this turn, this commercial turn. 1776 is also the year Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations came out as it happens. It's also the year the Declaration of Independence comes out. And in the Declaration of Independence, we are aware of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. There's this other line, this really interesting line about the consent of the governed. And that single word consent is what I'm hanging this entire book on. Of course, consent for libertarians and libertarian Christians is going to be an important, in fact, central value, but one that is often overlooked. So I'm trying to figure out how to hang the whole concept of the book on this idea of consent and evoke some of the nostalgia for the founding fathers that I believe is actually getting lost through time. Mm. So it is an attempt to be both forward-looking, but historically informed. Yeah. And in that underthrow, which I can go into that in a bit, the title is really about, is this forward-looking thing, this, this idea of action, a certain kind of action that people can take in concert while appealing to this idea that never got fully realized in Jefferson. You seem to kind of understand at the beginning of the book that 
this book isn't going to be for everybody, that some people aren't going to align with the sort of motivations or even underpinnings for why you want to advocate for what you're advocating for. Who is this book for? Like, who is it written to? Is this written to the libertarian anarchist leaning people? Is it written to the more like dedicated libertarians? Who did you have in mind when you're saying, hey, I need people to hear this idea and understand that this is how we can move forward? I actually hoped that this book would be a little bit more ecumenical in the sense that someone with conservative sensibilities could come across and go, yeah, yeah, actually, I get that, right? There is a, this traditionalist conservative that actually makes an appearance in the book where they're concerned about this sort of tearing down, I guess you could say, of our social structures that are the purview of tradition. Tradition has embedded wisdom. I mean, there's something about the conservative case for tradition that is really important and we can't set aside. And I seek to integrate that in the book. But there are also some, and I mean this, left progressive ideas mm -hmm. or maybe even sentiments that can be built in too so that this becomes a reconciliation. Because the system that I'm proposing, consent-based systems, as long as there are ways for the rule sets to carve out niches for people to establish different conceptions of the good in more localized fashion and live according to the, those auspices under a broader superstructure of consent that is, as we'll get to, constitutional, hopefully, that that kind of pluralism, that upgraded pluralism is enough to accommodate the traditionalist, enough to accommodate the progressive, and enough to accommodate the libertarian. And whatever other stripe or flavor of kibbutznik, communist, <laughs> whatever you like that's out there, that's a recurring theme in all my books. But in particular, this one, it's really addressing trying to create this ecumenical case for human liberty and the rule sets for how that gets instantiated that preserves, that doesn't say and I think this is where libertarians go wrong, that a libertarian order writ large needs to be libertarian in that the superstructure gets enforced by a minimal state and that there's a certain level of taxation beyond which is evil. You know, taxation at all might be evil, but this is sort of like, okay, but if you're really dealing with the idea of consent of the governed, I can join a homeowners association that has certain kind of taboos, prohibitions, whatever. Yeah, right. Let's extend that rationale to the wider social order and see what we can do. And if there are spillover effects across these niches or these smaller jurisdictions, then we can adjudicate those in various ways, particularly in court. So getting into the systems level stuff might be a little bit boring, but that's the idea. So yeah, okay. I want the anarcho-capitalist to say, yeah, that's right. Okay, I get that. It doesn't mean that the entire world needs to be anarcho-capitalist. It means that it, the fundamental substrate of law needs to be anarcho-capitalist, but that what emerges from those protocols, from that constitutional order, might be a community that has some prohibitions on certain things, cultural, financial, economic, otherwise, right? Down to the way your house looks. We only have brick houses in this neighborhood and we don't paint them pink. Is something that I might willingly opt into as long as that consent is prior. Yeah, right. And that means that an anarcho-capitalist order writ large, everybody's trying to force the one true way down your throat. And this is a way of saying, no, we can have a framework that allows people to opt into their various conceptions of the good up to and especially communities like 
conservative Christians, libertarian Christians, and non-Christians, Muslims, Jews, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Giving them the space to not engage in tit-for-tat politics, trying to find group affiliations with partisan tribes and engage in political warfare to impose that kind of order on the rest of society. That's where we're going wrong. Do you think that maybe that because the model for many libertarians, which most of us have an affinity for at least the ideal of what the founding fathers were trying to get at, right? Like there is something unique about the American founding in that they started this trend toward more individual liberty and freedom, even if they couldn't complete it in their lifetime and end slavery and most of their lifetime and all of that. Actually, I guess any of their lifetime, really, given how long it took. But because it's sort of the model that we see, we think of it as like, oh, okay, so we need like the superstructure, which is in this case is really, but people view it as the federal government, as the superstructure. And we want to make the federal government like as libertarian as possible, and then the states can do whatever they want. And they, because that's the model, that's kind of where libertarians are aiming their efforts and maybe in futility. Yeah, I have this... Funny thing that I hope I haven't described this on the show before, but the risk of repeating myself. (laughs) No, it's all good. I consider myself an asymptotic anarchist. Okay. Yeah, you're going to have to define that. I don't actually think you've used that phrase here. Okay. All right. Let's do it then. An asymptote for the mathematically inclined. And by the way, I'm not so mathematically inclined. I I picked this (laughs) up. Me neither. You're going to have to define (laughs) this for me, not just for my audience. Yeah. So you have some sort of axis. And you have some sort of function on a graph where a line gets closer and closer to the axis, but never actually gets there. It's called Mm. an asymptote. Okay. It's sort of like Zeno's paradox or something. Something gets closer and closer to the wall, but never actually gets there because it always goes halfway to the wall, but never, you know, something like that. Okay. That's what it means. All right. I I knew what that was. I just didn't know that that's what it was called. Yeah. So if an anarchist can never quite get to a condition of anarchy, but is always trying to get closer and closer... That's what we should be shooting for. Sure. Okay. But what's really interesting about that is there's kind of an embedded joke in it or humor in it. If I unpack the humor, it's something like this. The debate between minarchists and anarchists is kind of stupid. Mm. Okay. Because you're always getting people who share a similar North Star, but it's not exactly the same, but it's so far off into the distance. It's basically on the other side of the world. It's so far off onto the horizon. Why are you bothering with arguments about some ideal system that's never going to be realized as if there's going to be this constitutional moment that falls from the sky like the tablets of Moses, right? And gives you this day where we all go, let's set up an either a minarchist order or an anarchist order. That's not the way the world works. We're always pushing forward in what, at fee, they called anything peaceful. What that looks like, we cannot say. We need to experiment. And so underthrow, the idea of underthrow is that we're constantly pushing towards a condition where no human being threatens violence, theft, constraint, or whatever on another human being. And that's what Mm -hmm. we share as a doctrine, right? Some people call it non-aggression axiom. Other people call it the harm principle from John Stuart Mill. But it's basically this idea. We're trying to get to a situation where we don't threaten violence against one another. And we figure out a system of protocols that allows us to the extent possible to live our own lives according to our conceptions of the good. 
Okay. Yeah. Well, and you're you're also prioritizing consent in as many areas of life as possible, or all areas of life. Bingo. So that when you're doing something with, to, by, for your neighbor, it's with their consent. That's right. That's right. No doubt about it. That's beautifully said. So minarchism, anarchism debate, we love to have fun and have those debates. But is it a matter of like, oh, it's too impractical because it is at the other side of the world? Or is it, is there something more philosophical about why you think that that's not where we should be putting energy? Yeah, I think it's the practical. I think philosophically speaking, unless we imagine, and by the way, I'm going to contradict myself and imagine that when we talk about constitution craft later, which I hope we can do, that we're going to get closer to that moment. But even then, as we craft some sort of new constitution, the old one's still sticking around and it's got holes in it and it's fraying at the edges and half of the Bill of Rights has been redacted, you know, marked out with markers (laughs) by the living constitutionalists and Little wink emojis typed in. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Wink, wink. Fourth Amendment. Yeah, right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So the idea of this framework instantiated in a constitution, which can be an object of our reverence again, means we need, like Jefferson said, he said it's every 20 years. We need a reboot, right? He thought it would be every 20 years. We need a new constitution every 20 years. He also thought it would probably end up violent. He sure did. And depending on your interpretation of Jefferson, it most certainly has. He was among the anti-federalists, and I count myself among them. Even though I love, love, love the Constitution, I think they opened the doors to the Hamiltonians too early, and that was a Mm -hmm. problem. Yeah. But going back to the philosophical questions, I'm a philosopher by training, so that's my background. And yet, I also know that from a pragmatic standpoint, it's all about moving the Overton window to some extent, to the idea of a consent-based order, and that we can latch on to that as human beings as an object of reverence, something external to our mindset that we can say that, we can point to and say that's what we're looking for. That is the ideal. Do you feel like that those debates that we have aren't useful in the present? Because it seems to me that if you and I would say, Max, we're going to go start our own little gulch gulch somewhere in somewhere Texas, because that's obviously the best place to do it, right? We are going to go create our little community. Well, we're going to have to discuss what kind of civil governance we're going to have in our, let's say, HOA, right? Probably that's just going to trigger some people. Call call it big big HOA. Big HOA, right? So we're going to have to come up and we're inviting, you know, all of our libertarian friends and we're going to all disagree over how are we going to pay for certain things? Are we going to just voluntarily pay for the police that we want in our big community or our security, I should call it? in our community. So the questions from a sort of theoretical or philosophical standpoint seem to be somewhat helpful in the experimenting process, which is what you advocate for. Is that literally the only place for this debate right now? Because in terms of a large scale, quote unquote, success, that's what's out of reach. But the implementation as we experiment and as we subvert and overthrow the empire. Underthrow. Underthrow. Yeah, sorry. That's good. (laughs) underthrow the empire, that that's where those debates are to be had. Yes, the latter. Absolutely the latter. And it's not to say that you shouldn't think about the stuff philosophically and that that you then think about how to operationalize it. But that second step, I mean, everything starts with a theory. Anything you're going to try starts with a hypothesis. And that is the stuff of philosophy. So we don't throw the philosophical baby out with the bathwater. 
we just need to transmute it into some set of protocols that can be experimented with and instantiated, right? So if we're going to Galt Skolt, Texas, I mean, I just moved to South Carolina, where I think to this day, secession is still a dirty word, <laughs> mm. you know, whereas Texas, there's a lot more toleration for the idea of the Republic of Texas. South Carolina has that historical baggage about being the first state to secede in the Civil War, but I just moved from Austin to the upstate in South Carolina. So really enjoying that. But there's no doubt that if I, you know, I'm broadcasting from South Carolina, talking about secession, people are (laughs) going to think I'm some kind of crazy racist. So there's that baggage. Interestingly, however, there is in the UN charter, and for this crowd, evoking the UN is almost just as dangerous in terms of branding. But in the UN charter, for some audiences, the right of self-determination is very clear right? And self-determination is just another word for secession or separatism. So in this conception that I'm trying to sell people to sort of change their mind frame, secession would be baked in and it wouldn't be a high cost proposition. Okay. Right. So you would be able easily to secede and you would be able to secede locally. So if we went to Galt's Gulch and there's someone wanted to, it's just like with computer code, fork the code, Mm-hmm. except change one thing. It's like, oh yeah, we're going to allow for pink houses. So would they allow for pink houses? The property rights are going to stand. There are going to be mechanisms for adjudicating between people who are claiming some sort of tort claim, some sort of harm, transgression against themselves by another party. Mm-hmm. All of that stuff, we don't want to throw that away because that's going to be, in my view, part and parcel to how this stuff gets resolved. It may not be perfect. It may be that you have a jury that doesn't go your way and you're more libertarian than they. But at the very least, when you start to conceive of these systems, you want to think about how to try them out, how to try something else out differently. And as each of those niches starts to experiment with different rule sets, you can start to get copycats. And that's pretty interesting. Hi, everyone. This is Jacob Daniel Winograd. If you're enjoying this podcast, you may want to check out other shows in the Christians for Liberty Network, such as my podcast, The Biblical Anarchy Podcast, where we seek to live counterculture to the empire of man by instead seeking the kingdom of God, where we unpack what the Bible teaches about government, authority, and human relationships. The Christians for Liberty Network is dedicated to bringing a variety of content you love, just like you're hearing on this episode right now. Okay, I'll let you get back to it. Then you can check out the Biblical Anarchy podcast. I was planning on talking, the the book is broken down into three main parts, and I was going to have you talk about a little bit of the absurdities, which is part one. I think for the most part, our audience probably is comprehending that there is a major societal problem and that there are many. So I'm going to let them read that. But I want to talk to you more now about this chapter, Don't Mess With Our Roots, (laughs) which is the beginning of your alternatives. And I think that any libertarian who has some sort of affinity for, even if it's not rah-rah America, but we have an affinity for what was attempted to be accomplished in the founding of this country, that's a phrase that would appeal to them as a chapter title. If they're thumbing through the table of contents, they're going to look at that and say, don't mess with our roots. You're going to appeal to a lot of people like that. So what's going on in that chapter? So the thing about, okay, I'm trying to decide whether or not to evoke stage theory here, which is kind of high, very high level and very high minded. But let's put it this way. 
even the most anarchist, open-minded, secular person has things that they hold dear that you might call roots, okay? That we might call the substrata. That's the fancy term, which are just layers upon which we've built our worldviews. And those differ from one to the next, but we can find groupings of people who have rough equivalents. Mm -hmm. And let me, I'll give you an example just from that chapter. There were some, I don't know what, Zer, him, her, she type, <laughs> non-binary, whatever, LGBTQ, ABCDFG. Don't get me canceled by saying all these things okay, on uh, I'm YouTube, man. No, I'm kidding. Right. I'm totally kidding. Okay. No, I'm, I just, this person was complaining and the person was biologically clearly female. Okay. And a waitress or sorry, a server <laughs> comes up <laughs> and fine. says, ma'am, can I get you some more water? And she's expressing how irritated that yeah, this person that just encounter, assumed yeah. that, that she was a ma'am instead of a sir or something else, whatever the, I don't know how you honor someone in this way, similarly in, in that community. But for me, I read that it's like, I'm living in South Carolina and just moved from Texas. And in both places, ma'am and sir is something that to say ma'am and sir, is something I was raised to do. And it is a way of honoring someone. Yeah. Yeah. It is a way of honoring. It's a respectful dialogue to, well, strangers, but also to people you are close to even. Yes. You know, like, you know, your grandpa gives you something. You say, thank you, sir. <laughs> yeah. And it evokes secondary sex characteristics, obviously, to be able to make the designation. One might pull back and not say ma'am or sir if the person looks like the androgynous Pat from the old Saturday Night Live episodes. Yeah, right. But yeah. basically, you're going to say ma'am or sir if someone looks like, sexually speaking, not gender identity, but sexually speaking, a man or a woman. And there is a certain amount of rootedness to that. Even if I'm a wacky, secular, anarcho-capitalist, there might be pieces like shale layers of tradition that I'm building on that this becomes a part of my culture, right? This is a part of who I am, part of, yes, perhaps a socially constructed identity. They might not say ma'am and sir in Senegal or Singapore. Perhaps they do, or they have some rough equivalent. But there are these substrata, these things that though I might be, one might be highly educated and sophisticated in certain regards and cosmopolitan in other ways, and even LGBTQ adjacent, that they still want to retain that way that they were taught to acknowledge and honor someone who is perhaps a stranger. Mm -hmm. And to say, not only, it does so much work to say, ma'am or sir, it's like, I'm deferring to you. I'm here to be respectful to you, right? So that's why you say it. For someone to interpret it as disrespect and demand that you change your socially constructed reality away from ma'am and sir to some other thing that was, didn't even exist five minutes ago is a feature of rootedness that allows me to give a nod to traditionalism as part of the shale layers mm, of human okay. experience and culture. That is not to say that I don't have more sophisticated thoughts and ways of honoring other people in different ways that might build atop that shale layer. But that is part of my roots. It's part of my cultural heritage. Don't mess with it too much. Well, what is our shared heritage as Americans? I mean, would you call it liberalism? Yes. 
at the end of the day, it seems to me that like that is the one thing that I want to from putting on a Christian hat, right? Like not thinking entirely as a Christian, but thinking like about the pluralism of our world and saying, okay, can we not all agree with this? And I mean, I think that liberalism, classical liberalism, just for those who may not understand that that's what we mean by this, what has become known as classical liberalism, unfortunately. I think that that is, I would say, one step above the sort of Christianization of the world over the past many hundreds of years. But at the same time, there's a lot of secular people who are like, yeah, no, liberalism is good and pluralism is good and it's okay to have people with divergent views and we're going to honor and respect the individual. They don't even have to acknowledge the Christian nature of that thing. But to me, that's the roots of a healthy society and it doesn't have to be Christian America, but it does have to be a liberal America or yes, pick your country name. Yes. And I have no doubt your listeners understand the difference between liberal, the term deriving from libertas, which means freedom, right? That's something that we want. <laughs> That's something that we seek. It lights our world, as they say. And so if we think of liberalism as the broad doctrine of freedom, that is something that we all share as Americans. Unless you're one of these Patrick Deneen style NatCons, national mm. conservatives. Yeah. Or I also reference this guy, Paul Kingsnorth, who does a lot of writing. And it gets into the more sort of Roger Ayer space where they want everything to, it's sort of like, it's all traditionalism and it all needs to be imposed. If you don't agree that your traditionalism, whatever that is, needs to be imposed, it rather chosen, then you are a true liberal. Liberal is foundation. Well, it goes back to the consent piece. Yes, you could call yourself liberal Christians instead of libertarian Christians because it means the same thing. Well, it means the same thing sociologically. Sociologically. A libertarian Christian can be a conservative and can also be, in certain limited respects, more progressive-leaning. Sure, yeah. Okay, but as long as there is a preservation of that you see Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've accepted him into your heart, all that kind of stuff, broadly speaking, what it means to be a Christian, that you accept that Jesus died for our sins and all these other things, right? Sure, yeah. And you accept liberalism, which is that that doctrine is chosen, not imposed. Well, I mean, the whole of the Christian enterprise is that we are inviting people to acknowledge Jesus is Lord, that God has made him king, and that's where our allegiance ought to be. And you can't force allegiance. I mean, it's physically been tried, right? I mean, we've had we've had states and empires try to do this, but you can't actually make someone do that, right? I mean, they can go through the motions, they can pretend, but you have to convince somebody. They have to consent. They have to choose, as you're saying here. They have to choose the way, and that flies in the face of the people who would rather not either wait or use moral suasion or rhetoric to convince people. Right. That happens from the national conservatives, what I'm calling traditionalists, and it also happens from the radical social justice types. What they share in common is not their doctrines. They're very far apart in terms of these shell layers I'm describing. They're very different, but what they share in common in their most unhealthy expressions is the desire to impose their conceptions of the good on others. To be liberal is to renounce that. And to say, we're only going to deal in the currency of persuasion. Yeah. 
I had a Christian progressive who was very much on the left. I haven't heard him step up against transgender discussions that are happening in our society because I, I think he holds more conservative views on that. But he's definitely not anti-woke. So, I mean, he's definitely more like, oh, well, you know, yeah, we need whiteness studies and all that. So that's the realm <laughs> of Christian he is in. And he told me once, and this is, I don't know, probably five, 10 years ago, he would say, and you have this in your book in actually the third part, which we kind of already talked a little bit about the anarchism, anarchism debate. And you have this idea that there are two versions of the world that we could kind of pursue. One is that we all must embrace either top-down imposed or just like the superstructure, I think of the word you used earlier, or the other option is jurisdictional movement as long as it's peaceful. And my friend had pointed out to me that the liberal view or the libertarian view of the world is an imposition to everybody else. And in my mind, that didn't seem to make any sense because in my world, I can live and let him live, right? In his world, I can't. And that's what is the difference. I don't know what you, if you have any thoughts on that. Have you heard other people say that, well, you can't impose libertarianism because that means that other people can't live the way they want to, which sounds such like a funny thing to even ask. I think it's, they've played fast and loose with the language for so long that they've started to get high on their own supply to mix metaphors. So forgive <laughs> me for great. saying that, but no, it's but fine. let me put a finer point on it with an example. The idea of, and when I want to go back to this, by the way, the idea of the social contract. People throw around the term social contract willy-nilly as if anything under the sun that they want to see in terms of a large welfare state <laughs> where there's a social safety net. And, they sneak it in. And 40% taxation just at the federal level and UBI and free healthcare and free education and this and that. All of these are part of the quote-unquote social contract. Why? Because I just made it up. <laughs> right? Because I said so. Because it seems vaguely social contracty. It seems vaguely like something that re people would reasonably agree to. And if it's reasonable to agree to it, they should, even if they don't. So in it must, the social contract must be in there. It must be in the social contract. We're going to impose it. And so they don't ever get to the idea that that's an imposition. They see that the libertarian view, which is going to deny them this eminently reasonable social contract or the public good or the common good, there's similar strains of this kind of vague language that people will just drop that have no basis in reason or reasoned argumentation, much less the reality of the way the world is constructed. It is the interests of the stronger. And the interests of the stronger use these things to essentially to keep a whole lot of people as constituents dependent on them for their political ambitions. That's the way it works out and why it's so hard to dislodge. Mm. But I think the justifications for it are tremendously weak. It's like, well, we have to see that poor people are taken care of. Well, those are conversations we not only can have, but should. But the manner in which they're taken care of is going to be very different from one conception to the next. And I think libertarian Christians are going to, like me, would support, say, some sort of set of mutual aid networks where we take care of each other and we opt into these social structures where we, we know how to take care of each other better or the church does it, or the fraternal societies or whatever. Whereas with the progressive, it's like, it must be the state. Otherwise, someone will fall through the cracks. Well, they're already falling through the cracks left and right. Yeah, and what you have yeah. left is this massive Leviathan state that's awash in red ink. We needn't have these debates here. Imagine we're having these de debates because we've had them a thousand times. But suffice it to say, 
what I'm saying is we don't need to have those debates in the superstructure like this or in the framework of a consent-based order because we can nicheify. We can come together in communities of practice where we decide to tax ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. If you want to live in, let's say, Kami Gulch, then Kami Gulch can exist, self-determined. We can opt into it or out, out of it, which just means lowering the cost of exit and entry yeah. for all parties. And if you do that, if it's unsustainable, you will find out the hard way. If it is sustainable, then people will, may want to opt into that system and they may feel a moral obligation to do so. Hello, everyone. It's Doug from the Libertarian Christian Podcast. You might notice already that this recording sounds quite a bit different from usual. In fact, it probably sounds pretty crappy. Well, I'm doing this to show you something pretty amazing. As you might know, the guys over at Podsworth Media have been producing my show for several years, quite a while, hundreds of episodes. And now they have a brand new online app for taking rough recordings like this one and making them sound a whole lot cleaner and a lot more listenable in just a few easy clicks. So here are some of the core features. They remove background noise. It reduces plosives, which is really handy for me because I often forget to put my pop filter on before I do a YouTube video. I often forget to put my pop filter on before I do a YouTube video because pop filters look terrible when you're on camera. It fixes clipping. It removes clicks and pops. It fixes clipping. It removes clicks and pops. It evenly levels dialogue so that you don't have somebody talking really quietly and then somebody talking really loud because they're too close to the mic or too far away from the mic. It evenly levels dialogue so that you don't have somebody talking really quietly. And then somebody talking really loud because they're too close to the mic or too far away from the mic. How do you use it? It's easy. You go to podsworth.com, you click get started. And because you're a listener to one of the Libertarian Christian Institute's podcasts, you can get 50% off your first order by entering the promo code LCI50. That's LCI50 and you will get 50% off your first order. If you are doing anything like a podcast, a video, a sermon, an audiobook, anything that's spoken word, you want to use podsworth.com and clean up your audio to be even more professional and polished. You want to use podsworth.com and clean up your audio to be even more professional and polished. Talk a little bit about the constitutionalism. You mentioned you wanted to get back to that in our earlier part of the conversation. What do you have to say about how we manage our social contracts. Are we creating new constitutions? Are we just modifying the current one? Is this all on the blockchain? I mean, there's all those kinds of practical <laughs> questions of like, well, what does this even, how do we get to this sort of Jeffersonian society in a way? That's a really beautifully... And you have one and a half minutes. No, I'm kidding. You have a few more minutes than that. Okay, okay. That's a beautiful <laughs> way to put it. And please cut me off if you need to, because I can rattle on endlessly about this stuff. But First, I want to say, I want to announce to your listeners that I have a $25,000 Constitution of Consent contest, okay? If you want to be informed about that contest launch, I want to encourage them to sign up at underthrow.org, okay? Underthrow.org, I'll have all the information about when okay. that actually launches. I'll go ahead and tell you that it launches July 15th, but... It will be at underthrow.org where they can find the information and they can go ahead and start getting it ready. The launch is just when I start accepting submissions. Yeah. So if your listeners want to go start working on it, the whole idea behind this is I have a set of criteria that I say, you should take a look at this as being part of your constitution. It's just a set of problems and there are, I think, 20 or so and 20 sort of 
nods to solutions, things you should look at to make sure that you might want to put in your constitution. These are sort of like rough criteria for this superstructure idea that I'm trying to communicate. The point of this is to get people thinking about constitutional design and what a consent-based order, a Jeffersonian consent-based order would actually look like. If we treated the Declaration of Independence as being one of our charter documents of law, Mm -hmm. then our constitution would look very differently. And this is something that I learned from Randy Barnett, who is a legal scholar at Georgetown. He's very good, libertarian legal scholar. So I'm saying, okay, Randy, you're right. Let's do it. Let's not just talk about it. Again, theoretical construct, he's trying to persuade others to think this way, and so am I. But in the process of doing so, we want to try to create this artifact. We want to try to build up steam around the idea of ratifying something, even if it were doing it in the cloud. And Mm -hmm. maybe someday it can be instantiated because more and more people get caught on to the idea that a Jeffersonian consent-based order is possible. So... The way I'm starting the ball rolling is, no, it's not on the blockchain. I'm just getting submissions to this contest. And the best one is going to get $20,000. Second best is going to get $3,000. Third best is going to get $2,000. Won a big, heavy prize for the best one. But that's not to say that all of this is going to be some static thing. I have been influenced by the open source movement and subsequently the cryptocurrency space. And in the cryptocurrency space, code is law but code can be forked or merged, okay? This is how we move the Overton window. Once you get people thinking practically, as in practice, instead of just theoretically, we can start to imagine how to instantiate a consent-based order where the ramifications are that is that they're not so rigid and imposed, but rather if you bake in a right of self-determination, secession, right? That we talked about earlier. Or if you bake in this idea that you are actually going to sign the social contract, which obliges you to live under its auspices Mm -hmm. for a certain prescribed time, then you are literally signing a contract. That's contract law. That's not imposed law. That's chosen law. Let's use the law of contracts and the law of torts instead of the law of statute. That's just Roman imperialism all over again. Mm -hmm. And it's no wonder we're turning into an empire because as all of the associated bad incentives. My theory is that we can, at least to some degree, stop the cycles of imperialism and decline if we have a consent-based order because it's a much more fluid meshwork Mm -hmm. of meta-doctrine but has subsidiary doctrines that pull people into these smaller orbits, smaller pockets or niches. You are one of my favorite thinkers when it comes to thinking about the future and thinking about how do we actually sort of take the steps rather than just sit around and theorize about what those steps might be and hopefully we'll get a libertarian candidate win the day and people will just flock to him or her and and then all of a sudden it'll be like, wait, it's time to, it's time to implement this. And you're saying we can do things now. We can take mm-hmm. small steps. They can be theoretical. They can be practical. They can be business-oriented, they can be faith-based oriented, they can be, but they're all based on consent and they're all based in innovation, entrepreneurship, and thinking in ways that... And community. Yes, absolutely. And community. And it's great that the title of your book is Underthrow because that is, it's very, I don't know if you know this, you probably do, that 
the very way of Jesus is more about loving under and serving and lifting other people up. So this idea of like, we're not going to topple things in the sense of like, we're going to be overbearing and demanding and conquering is more of the word. We are going to subvert and we are going to serve others. So there's a parallel there, I think, in some ways with that. And so I think that's beautiful, by the way. And I want to just say that I appeal in some sense to, and in a couple of my books, I've appealed to Satyagraha, the idea of Gandhi's truth force. There's nothing that happened that was particularly violent with bringing down the British Raj in 1945 or 1943, whatever the year was that the British Empire was cast off of the Indian subcontinent. Gandhi learned from Jesus. Martin Luther King learned from Gandhi. So Martin Luther King learned from Ahimsa, which is his own tradition of Hinduism, but it's essentially the golden rule. It's just another instantiation of the golden rule. Jesus learned that from Rabbi Hillel, that which is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is another variation on the golden mm. rule. So there is this sense of respect for persons that is virtually cosmopolitan that Jesus, to my mind, really elevates as a concept, both in word and deed. He practiced peace. He practiced love. And it was such a tremendous force as soon as he existed that this rippled out. I want this constitution to be conceived in love. It can't be otherwise. Yeah. How else are we to love others except not to impose our will on them? <laughs> I mean, it's a rhetorical question, obviously, right? Like, <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, and look at how the empire of his day, Jesus' day responded, right? Like that was a threat. So the words I was looking for a little earlier was power under and power over. And the way of Christ is power under the way of the world, the way of the Gentiles, as it's articulated by Jesus to his disciples, is that they lord it over each other. That's not what you're going to be like. And I think the revolutionary mindset of like powering over people and conquering is not the way of Christ. So yeah, there's some parallels here. And I appreciate you coming on to talk about this. Repeat for everybody the website. It's underthrow.org, right? Correct. And do you write anywhere else? Is that the website to kind of get all your ideas? Where else can they find yeah, you? Yeah, that is the best now. That's a Substack site. Okay. And it has become a one-stop shop for me. I absolutely love Substack and I'm really enjoying it. I'm growing pretty quickly for having only been in existence for two months, but that will be sort of an, a one-stop shop. You can learn about my you can learn where to buy my books, including Underthrow, and you can learn, uh, you can read my individual pieces and mm -hmm. archives. Okay. And hopefully soon I want to start my own podcast like everybody else, but I'll be well <laughs> behind you guys. <laughs> so I'll probably call you up and ask your advice. <laughs> well, I'm always happy to provide advice on things that I have experienced in. This is one of them, I suppose. Well, Max, thanks for joining us. And I'm sure we will have another conversation and hopefully I'll see you at one of these events in the Liberty space sometime soon. Well, I hope to see you and anyone else who's listening at Freedom Fest. July 15th, which is the last day of Freedom Fest, is the day yep. we launch the Constitution of Consent Contest. You can officially submit your, your constitution on that day. And otherwise, if I don't see you there, we'll talk again soon, I hope. All right. Yeah, I'll see you there, man. Our whole team's going to be there. So it'd be nice to give you a hug this year too. Fabulous. Likewise. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.